Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Infectious Diseases. Three experts discuss the current landscape of COVID-19 vaccination, possible barriers to vaccine uptake, and strategies involving healthcare workers that may help to improve acceptance of the COVID-19 vaccine, with a focus on Africa and the Middle East. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Moderna Inc. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Angus Thompson and I'm a senior social scientist and principal at Irimi Company and adjunct clinical professor at Indiana University of Liberal Arts in the US. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this discussion today on reducing transmission of COVID-19 with a spotlight on vaccines. This is one of four activities on improving public health outcomes in Africa and the Middle East through COVID-19 vaccination. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Amaya Gillespie, a senior behavioral scientist who's been leading the coordination of the COVID-19 response for the Middle East and North Africa region in a joint role with the World Health Organization and UNICEF. Also joining us today in this discussion is Dr. Henry Kyobe-Boza. Dr. Kyobe-Boza is the Incident Commander for COVID-19 in the Ministry of Health, Uganda. And prior to this role, he was a senior public health specialist with the Outbreak and Epidemics Pilot Program at African Risk Capacity, a specialized agency of the African Union. Welcome to you both. This is our agenda for today's panel discussion. We have four sections. We'll start with taking stock of where we are now with COVID-19 vaccination programs in Africa and the Middle East. We'll then look at the factors that may be contributing to the very diverse differential uptake of COVID-19 vaccines in population subsets, uh, within the regions, across countries and within countries. We'll look at what the most effective possible strategies are to increase COVID-19 vaccination rates. And then we'll finish by taking a look ahead, um, thinking about where, we will, where we're going with COVID-19 vaccination programs in the Middle East and Africa. So the first part of our discussion, we'll look at where we are now with COVID-19 vaccination across the world. Uh, COVID-19 remains a public health emergency uh, since it was declared uh, in 2020 by the World Health Organization. Um, it remains a threat to people across the world. We've seen emergence of variants across the world. And when we take a, an overview of the immunization rates that have been achieved by various countries, we see quite dramatic disparities, indeed inequities, in terms of the percentage of people who are being protected by COVID-19 vaccines. In Africa, we see broad disparities, uh, high immunization rates achieved in countries like Botswana, over 70%, in Uganda, 40%, but uh, Mali at only 16%, and other countries even lower. In the Middle East, countries like Qatar achieved uh, complete 100% vaccination with at least one dose whereas other countries like Iraq are still only at 25%, and uh, unstable countries as, uh, like Yemen are yet to reach even 5% coverage. Across the world, um, four 
vaccines um, have been distributed most commonly, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, the adenovirus recombinant um, vector, the two mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, and the Sinopharm vaccine, the inactivated viral vaccine. In the regions, uh, there are slight differences. Um, in Africa, uh, over a third of the population received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And in uh, the Middle East, we see both the Sinopharm vaccine and the Sinovac vaccine uh, that have been uh, most commonly distributed within those regions. So now we'd like to, I'd like to um, ask Henry and Amaya to join me in discussing uh, or answering a few of the questions that we have heard from you uh, prior to the recording of this, of this um, session. Um, we're going to start with um, understanding the current recommendations for COVID-19 vaccination uh, in the uh, Middle East and Africa region. Amaya, could you tell us what the current recommendations in the Middle East are for COVID-19 vaccination? Yes, so throughout the pandemic, uh, we have been following, as um, when I say we, I'm talking about the, the UN and in our support to governments, and we've been following the guidelines of um, the World Health Organization. And while these guidelines have changed over time, you know, from the beginning, of course, uh, we didn't have all the data that we needed. So as the data came in, those those guidelines were updated in record time, actually, um, in order to keep up with the pandemic itself. So we're at a point where um, the vaccine um, in the guidelines, the vaccine is recommended as being very safe for actually um, you know, most populations. Um, in, uh, and so that means that um, while it's safe for everyone, there's still some priority in terms of actually uh, reducing risk of death in particular and severe illness. And um, this is targeting uh, definitely elderly, the elderly population um, over 50, um, but in some places the age range um, is, is altered a little, but certainly older people, um, immunocompromised um, individuals as well, or people who have um, comorbidities. Um, but it is important to say that, you know, when um, the data came out that it was safe for pregnant women, safe for children. Um, this was really important information. It meant that the vaccine could be provided really broadly. Um, but just to say that we do still have these priority groups in place in order to get the most benefit for those people who are most at risk for severe illness and, um, and death. Thank you. And Henry, do you have the same recommendations in Africa? Yes, certainly across the continent in sub-Saharan Africa, this remains the same recommendation and the same age groups and the same categories. But specifically here uh, in Uganda, for example, the recommendation for the children starts essentially between 12 years and above. That varies a little bit from country to country on the continent. But the rest of the other groups, elderly patients, immunocompromised individuals, and in individuals with diabetes and hypertension, people who suffer from severe disease, are those that are recommended also in this part of the world. Thank you. And we've seen that we've, as, as we heard from Amaya, that um, we've been 
having to uh, adjust our recommendations on the fly, and this is in part uh, related to our evolving understanding of the efficacy and effectiveness of these vaccines. And we had a question, um, a number of questions around the efficacy of the vaccines um, and what uh, immunization rates are needed for us to, um, to protect communities and populations. So we see across the vaccines that you saw uh, on the previous slide, uh, differing levels of efficacy. The mRNA vaccines have all shown efficacy against uh, symptomatic disease of over 90%. Uh, the other vaccines are still quite high. But it's important for us to understand with COVID-19 vaccines, as we see with uh, some other vaccines like the influenza vaccines, that efficacy against severe disease is extremely important. And uh, what we see across the vaccines that are available is um, very high rates of efficacy against severe disease, hospitalization, um, death. This is important and should inform our recommendations because um, we see real disparities in uh, the impact of severe disease on different populations. For example, uh, there's data that suggests that um, in some high-income countries, over 80% of all uh, mortality was in those older adults. When we think about the immunization rates that are needed, we should be thinking obviously about what rates we can, what, what levels we should reach to reduce circulation of the virus within our populations to start to uh, generate herd immunity. But we should also be thinking about you know, what, are the, what are the appropriate rates in some of those subpopulations. The generally accepted current thinking is um, somewhere between 75 to 85% within a population to stop circulation of the virus. Has this been achieved? You asked us. Um, I think we've seen on those previous slides that there are many, many countries where we're still a long way from achieving these immunization rates, both in those specific at-risk groups and in the population in general. Another question we had was around the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. So the, what does the real-world data tell us? We have uh, substantial real-world data now, at least for the pre-Omicron variants, and it's very encouraging for me. It suggests that the effectiveness of the vaccines is very close to their, uh, the efficacy that was demonstrated in the, um, in the trials where they were tested, and uh, even some of the vaccines that had lower efficacy in the trials are showing sustained effectiveness, equivalent rates of protection against symptomatic disease and against uh, complications, um, severe disease in those at-risk groups. We had, uh, looking ahead now, a question around um, uh, how can these vaccines remain effective as new COVID-19 variants emerge? And Henry, I'd like to ask you um, for your reflections on this question. Uh, quite important. Uh, we've seen, of course, WHO, uh, and maybe to start that the, the recommendations have moved because for this part of the world has depended largely on the availability of vaccine doses in the country. Uh, or in the countries. Uh, initially, the prioritization was on the individuals at high risk or the highest risk of severe disease. 
And again, as more and more vaccines became available, then this progressed and involved other categories. But to answer the question specifically, the, 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 the efficacy, which I think, which of course came out in the trial, and that's what, what we see now, is that the vaccines have proved much effective since the introduction. As we recall, in the Delta wave, where we had uh, significant mortality among the all age groups, and unlike other settings where we saw in the in the largely elderly older individuals and people with comorbidities, but here we saw the the young adults, forty years and above or they about, and this actually changed when we had more and more vaccination coverage. And by the time when we did have uh, Omicron coming through, this had actually really moved further because that's when the vaccination coverages started picking up. But WHO, uh, in the initial prioritization that we had was uh, on individuals above 18, because at that time, we only had evidence on individuals above 18, but as more evidence came through, when we have when we had more evidence on the individuals below 18 years, this was shifted. But WHO puts that the coverage should be, as you put it, 75 and above to have optimal suppression of transmission. But as we see in most of our countries, specifically in the, in the, in the African region, the sub-Saharan Africa, very few countries, if any, have achieved that coverage, meaning that we need to move more and more to that category, to that, to that coverage, to make sure that we have optimum coverage. And as more and more variants emerge, we fear if we don't have these coverages, we may have a rebound, a potential rebound of transmission amongst individuals, specifically the individuals that are prioritized where WHO recommend, recommends uh, intense vaccination. Thank you. And as we move through this discussion, um, we're organizing our thinking in particular um, around uh, one uh, important group, which is um, health workers. And we've seen real disparities across the world in immunization rates in health workers as well, with some countries only having around 30% uh, uptake in health workers as opposed to other countries which have achieved very high rates of 80 or 90%. And we'll be organizing our thinking through this panel um, around the general population and at-risk groups and health workers. So now we'd like to look at um, what we know about the root causes of uh, this differential uptake of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, in different populations and communities within countries and across countries. I use um, a taxonomy that I call a 6A's taxonomy to help unpack the reasons for low immunization uptake, a uh, low vaccine uptake in, in programs around the world. Um, I use this because it's intuitive, but also because 
it helps move us away from the uh, wrong assumption that low uptake is commonly due to hesitancy or low demand in communities and populations. The six A's are this, access, uh, I can get to the vaccine, or more importantly, the vaccine can reach me. Affordability, I can afford to pay for the vaccine, either in financial um, terms or in opportunity costs. Awareness, I know there's a vaccine for me, where I should get it, why I should be getting it, but we know that that's not enough to move people uh, to a behavior like uh, getting immunized. Um, acceptance is the rather large complex bucket of potential barriers to uptake um, that require us to draw upon uh, the social and behavioral sciences to understand what we can do. Activation is whatever it takes to get somebody over the line when they're ready to get vaccinated. Um, it's the reminder from my dentist that gets me to go and get my teeth checked. And accountability is a, is a broader um, key factor that, that refers to the importance of having strong political will um, in those who are responsible for the programs, for the performance of the programs, and, and accountability for the performance of the programs. There were a number of questions around vaccine acceptance. So just a, a quick refresher on what we understand about vaccine hesitance and acceptance. This motivational state, as it's been redefined by the World Health Organization, um, exists along a continuum. So we mustn't be thinking in binary terms. Any individual or a community may variously be uh, passive acceptors of vaccination. Some communities may actively ask, uh, demand vaccination. Um, a very few, uh, a very small percentage of any population in general are active refusers of vaccination. There is a, a rather volatile group um, of people that we might call hesitant, who we have to be thinking about and, and supporting in their decisions to move them uh, towards the right-hand side of this continuum. But I do want us, as we move through some of the questions that you asked, to bear in mind that there are potentially uh, many different root causes of low vaccine uptake. So, Henry, I'd like to ask you, first of all, to share any trends or patterns that you've seen in the public acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines uh, in your region and in your country? The trends, uh, the acceptance and uptake of vaccines, uh, starting with Uganda and most of the countries within the East African region and part of the South African region, is actually driven by, by risk and perceived risk of, of the danger, specifically looking at what is happening across uh, across the globe and within the country. And from the very beginning, we had a poor uptake and subsequently we had a ramp up of uptake, very rapid uptake, as we run through several bigger waves. And then uh, there was a slowdown on uptake of, of, of vaccines. And this is, was largely driven by a couple of factors. One of them, as I said, perceived risk, but also perceived risk of infection and specifically of severe disease. And later on, when we had more and more 
understanding of the high at-risk at categories. Then we started seeing individuals from the respective categories gearing uh, up more and more take on vaccination, specifically individuals above 50, individuals who are immunocompromised. Bear in mind that this part of the world, the sub-Saharan Africa has the highest, much, most, most, almost the biggest uh, number of HIV infections and people living with HIV. And of course, same part of the country where the health systems are largely not as optimal as elsewhere. So the perceived risk actually kept having the, the, the uptake more and more. But what we see subsequently after Omicron wave, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown of uptake of, of vaccination, largely driven by perceived low risk of, of infection as people watch and see what is happening around them and what is happening globally. Amaya, have you identified um, over the pandemic uh, specific common barriers to uptake across countries in the region or perhaps barriers that, you, that you've seen are specific to certain countries? So as, as a behavioural scientist, the first thing you have to accept is that humans are not that rational. And certainly, we, the whole world observed what that looks like. I think it is fair to say that prior to the COVID pandemic, a number of assumptions um, were quite different than they are now. And one of them was that if you just tell people to come and get immunised, you know, they'll do it because they, obviously everyone wants to be healthier and they'll believe you, etc. What we found is um, there's more commonality even around the world. So within the region, definitely, there's so much commonality in, in the actual factors that affected whether people got vaccinated or not. But some of our assumptions were really challenged. Like one that we like to say is that our more educated people will be more likely to do these things. While, while there is some um, evidence for that for sure, but that when you look at people who are highly resistant, there's also very educated people in that group. And particularly if you look at um, countries like the US, where you saw a huge um, range of opinion on, on what should happen. And it really, education did not predict that. So some of the usual assumptions really didn't work. But having said that, one of the key things that was at the centre for everyone, I believe, and certainly in this region, was trust. And really, the extent to which uh, people trust information, the source of information, trust government, you know, in the, in the big government sense, trust their health worker, trust their Ministry of Health. These things were so important everywhere. In our region, we had a really a particular situation where we have low, middle and high income countries. And what we found through an analysis that we did of the data that we have of the 23 countries across um, the region, we found there's a correlation between uh, vaccination rates and the income level, such that low income, low vaccination, middle income, mid vaccination range, high income, high. Now that doesn't make sense objectively. These are, you know, the same people. We live next door to each other, but there are some interesting aspects to consider. We can't prove um, why it is that way, but we certainly suspect that it was to do with 
the high-income countries, the Gulf countries in particular, had access to uh, supplies very quickly. They had access to the vaccinations, lots of them. They offered it to everyone without question. Um, you know, they, they have quite a strong health system and they certainly opened it up to everyone. They have very high vaccination rates and practically zero um, people in, uh, in terms of hesitancy. So I think these are interesting things to think about and particularly uh, when you emphasise, Angus, that, you know, we used to think that it was just, oh, people just aren't doing what they're told. But when we really analyse um, these situations, we can see a very big influence of the what we call the systems or the structural side of things. Yeah, and we certainly know that information overload uh, can be confusing for people. You touched on a few key points there. Um, work that I was doing with UNICEF through the pandemic uh, to support countries in social listening, I think, is very important because we can't understand which information is going to be strategic until we understand people's questions and concerns and, and the misinformation that they're being exposed to. You raised um, a very important point uh, that we know, those of us who study the behavioural and social determinants of vaccine uptake is very, very important, and that is trust, um, and trust in the information source. So we get our information that we incorporate into our decisions from people who we trust, but importantly, people who we consider to be trustworthy. So those are people who are expert and, and competent at what they do, but also who we feel have our best interests at heart. And we know across the world, consistently, health workers are considered to be one of the most trustworthy sources of vaccine information. So I'd like to now come back to you, Amaya, and ask you, specifically in health workers, um, have you, did you observe hesitancy in health workers um, about getting vaccinated themselves? And did you have any, do you have any indications around the reasons why they may have been hesitant? Yes, this is a question I love to address because this also, there's a, there's a strategic piece of information here that really changes your view of what's happening. It, well, it is true, as you said earlier, Angus, that um, in, um, in many countries, actually, in the region I'm working in, that you know, less than half of the health workers are vaccinated. And that has meant that very often we've characterised health workers as being resistant or hesitant to um, vaccination. However, in our region, as I said, we've, we've studied um, over several points in time in the pandemic, all the countries of the region, when we look at uh, vaccine uptake by employment group, health workers are the most vaccinated in the population, more than anyone else, followed, followed um, closely, somewhat closely by teachers. So when we think of it that way, you realise that health workers were actually subjected to the same barriers in many ways as the general population. It shouldn't have been that way because, in fact, frontline workers are a prioritised group still and, and were from, from quite early. shouldn't have been that way. But in the end, where there are not specific strategies for those health workers being such important channels and, and bridges to the community, where we didn't really see that as a formal set of mechanisms for health workers themselves, then you see them subjected to the same sort of vulnerabilities as the rest of the community. Yes, if I can come in here, on the contrary, what we see here, uh, for example, in Uganda, initial prioritization for all health workers in the country was around 150,000 individuals. So are teachers close to 500,000. The coverage has actually has been very, very good. 
Thank you, Henry. And did you see any hesitancy amongst health workers in Uganda, for example, to vaccinate or to vaccinate specific um, populations or subgroups within the population? No, specifically in an overt way, but because here and there you see one or two, a few outliers who specifically speak out that will not take vaccination. But it's not something that you'd see. Neither you don't see anyone or health workers really not vaccinating other categories. Right? This hasn't or did come out clearly. But as I say, there are specific anti-vaxxers, a few of them within the health workforce, but these are usually the minimum. But a bigger population of health workers, the acceptance is actually high. And actually, I'm hesitant also to use the word hesitancy for vaccination among the health workers, because we have had very good out uptake among that category. Thank you. So we saw the through the pandemic evolving recommendations as, as the situation evolved, um, recommendations for health workers to be a priority group to be vaccinated for obvious reasons because they're at the front lines um, at greater risk of contracting the virus. But also um, there's a second uh, benefit to that, which is um, by vaccinating the health workers, motivating them to get vaccinated, we're also motivating those trusted voices who are then going to be going out into the communities and not only vaccinating, but discussing with people the vaccines um, and vaccination. So we've looked at some of the reasons why um, we had suboptimal COVID-19 immunization rates across uh, the Middle East, North Africa and Africa. Now, in this section, we'd like to look at some of the, the strategies that emerged um, through the pandemic uh, as effective for increasing immunization rates, but also strategies that have been demonstrated across um, other immunization programs. Uh, what I think is important to emphasize every time when we're thinking about why we have low immunization rates is that we must first unpack the problem and identify the key barriers to uptake before we start thinking about the solutions. So using the 6As taxonomy, for example, we can identify specific barriers that correspond to each of the As. And we also know from studies, from large studies across many uh, different immunization programs across many countries, that there are specific solutions or interventions uh, that we can put in place to address those specific barriers. And they're often common across high, middle and low income countries, across many different contexts. So I'd like to now look at some of the questions that you asked us about what works in terms of increasing immunization rates. And I think I'd like to start with, uh, with you, Henry, and ask you um, in, in Uganda and in your observations across uh, the continent, um, what strategies did you see that involved health workers um, to effectively increase vaccine uptake in those specific target populations? Uh, yeah, I think from the very beginning, uh, COVID vaccination is for the first time where we had massive vaccination of adult individuals where much of the vaccination in this setting has been among the children 
exceptionally meningitis belts where we've been having previously had vaccination of individuals. And one of the factors that we had was basically access and availability of vaccines and long lines at health facilities and clinics where vaccination was, uh, being, was being undertaken. What we did in Uganda was to move beyond these facilities and have outreaches, community outreaches. And in this, we had regional campaigns, regional campaigns meaning that each part of the country, we launch an approach to a, a campaign to vaccinate the target individuals and those that are that are that that actually are, are susceptible to severe disease. And in this, we used uh, we used influencers, we used uh, religious leaders, we used cultural leaders, and in addition. We had uh, uh, the political leaders actually going out and talking to people and reaching out to them in, in churches, in mosques, to, for them to be able to take vaccination. And the health workers in this case uh, were actually, because initially we had overwhelming numbers in the facilities, and then in this case, when we moved in the communities, we had much more uptake as it were when we were in the facilities. So initially what had slowed down, the that had slowed down vaccination was actually the clogging and the long lines, the faith facilities. And this actually changed when we used campaigns and outreaches outside the, outside the facilities, the clinics and the hospitals. Amaya, in your region, did you see similar or other strategies um, that were effective in terms of um, supporting and employing health workers as vaccinators, but perhaps also as trusted voices? So the service experience is a really uh, is a very important uh, factor for the community, and often unrelated to COVID or even vaccination. But people's experience of services, it affects whether they want to come back for any kind of service in the future. So again, that's a structural issue. Um, trust, we come back to that, you know, we have to keep emphasising it because trust is local. You can't establish trust at a national or international level. It just doesn't work that way. It, it might be positioned nationally, but it has to be reinforced locally where I receive my service. So um, that face-to-face, -face, the outreach that Henry talked about, these things are just so, so important. Over and over in our research, and I believe all over the world, everywhere you look, health, local health workers are the most trusted people in the community, everywhere we look. And a number of countries managed to use almost a single health expert um, with daily uh, updates so that you came to trust that that channel of communication. And being like the chief medical officer or the health expert was very, very important um, to that role and the consistency and reliability that builds trust over time. So having said that, you know, when you're not in a pandemic is the best time to build trust. <laughs> if you didn't have it before, it's unlikely to develop during, you know, it's quite difficult to do. So this is also the work for us to do, you know, in between times and maybe, you know, this moment now is one of those. But um, related also then to um, who people trust. In the Middle East in particular, 
you know, we thought that religious leaders would have a very, uh, you know, very large impact on um, on people's uptake. Wherever we asked that question, we were surprised that um, people were not going to religious leaders for specific health and vaccine related, like the science um, uh, advice. However, we know that religious leaders have such a strong impact in communities in terms of the general sort of cohesion and connection to their communities. We actually tested data in multiple countries that showed that when you have a religious leader plus a health expert, you can get up to three times the benefit in terms of vaccine uptake or acceptance of various things actually, um, if you put them together. Very interesting. So you can't have too much trust. <laughs> and the more trust you have, the more likely you're going to get uptake. Um, as I touched upon, people get their knowledge from trusted voices. Um, but that interesting uh, dyad of the, the trusted religious leader and the health professional, the health professional providing the knowledge within that broader atmosphere of trust uh, leading to higher uptake is very, very interesting. <clears throat> Another important thing that we didn't see often enough through the pandemic was what you touched upon, the idea that when we are communicating about uh, the immunization programs. We need to be communicating regularly. We need to be communicating through a trusted voice. We need to be doing, we need to be telling people what we know and what we don't know. And we need to be speaking to people even if we don't have anything new. These are basic risk communication principles that weren't applied often enough um, through the pandemic. Henry, in Uganda as incident commander, did you come across misinformation and did you see it as a challenge to uptake? Yes, uh, initially it was uh, it was a, a big a big challenge, which we've tried as much as possible to overcome. And the major thing was uh, about side effects. Gladly, most of the side effects talked about actually didn't happen, and much of this was propagated by social media. But the best answer to misinformation is providing correct information. And as you said earlier, was to make sure that we provide as much information. And wherever, for example, I recall at the very beginning on March, uh, several months into the initial vaccination, was about the clotting or clots. And again, it was not until when we had to set up a system to monitor potential clots wherever across the country and set it, put in place a mechanism to be able to respond to them, then we were able to restore this. Amaya, I'd like to ask you about misinformation in, in the Middle East region as well. So we heard from Henry that um, it's important to be gathering the data that allows us to confidently um, respond to many of the questions and sometimes the misinformation that's circulating. Um, as a behavioral scientist, um, I think you would also understand that it's important that we consider how we address misinformation. Um, we don't want to be amplifying it or giving it oxygen. We want to, we need to understand how people process misinformation and incorporate it into their decisions and beliefs? The real important issue around uh, the behavioural data or, or really taking the, the, the pulse of the community is to make sure that we're not part of spreading the misinformation. 
And this is where we need to understand who is affected by which pieces of misinformation. In our region, we found that um, women of reproductive age in particular uh, were a, a little less likely to get um, vaccinated early on. And it tended to be around this misinformation around fertility. We, um, countries like Sudan, you know, a number of countries, Sudan, Jordan, many countries, Iraq, put in place very specific efforts uh, to address women and to reach women in communities, not just posters, but actually the sort of community engagement that Henry was talking about, and to help them understand, to show them role models, to speak with other women, um, to speak with trusted uh, people in the community in order to address that. And in uh, work supporting countries uh, with UNICEF country officers uh, to deal with misinformation during the pandemic, one of the things that we advised countries was exactly that, be very careful to assess the potential impact of the misinformation before you decide to address it. But we're actually starting to um, generate some very exciting data that suggests that we can directly um, inoculate people against misinformation. And the key to this is actually the difference between mis and disinformation that we've heard from both of you. Misinformation is false or confusing, wrong information. Disinformation is deliberately engineered misinformation. It's engineered by malicious actors um, with malintent, um, and they use deceitful tactics to spread it. And there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that psychological inoculation is possible um, by helping people identify the misinformation and identify the tricks that are being used by those few authors of disinformation to fool them. And in fact, we have an intervention, um, a gamified intervention that we uh, co-designed in East Africa, including in Uganda, and we've just got data today that suggests that that, that game, people playing that game, um, uh, have increased resistance to misinformation. So some very exciting data, I think, and possible future interventions that I think also touch upon um, your point, Amaya, that we need to be thinking ahead now, what are we going to be doing to build trust in communities to build resistance to misinformation so that we don't find ourselves in the same situation in the next pandemic. So we've heard some um, effective strategies <clears throat> for increasing COVID-19 vaccine immunization rates. But what we know is that um, any strategy must be multi-component. Uh, it must include multiple interventions and it must uh, involve the contribution, the participation and coordination of multiple actors um, across the health system and beyond uh, to ensure that we get sustained uptake in our vaccination programs. Henry, based on your experience in Uganda, how can governments, agencies, health workers and other key actors, civil society organisations, uh, best work together to increase COVID-19 vaccine uptake? Uh, the, at the height of the COVID response or COVID pandemic, governments and different partners, non-government organizations, including the continental bodies, the African Union, East African communities work together. And in this, they hoped to propel the health workers and the health systems to move in the direction of response. And I think we need to return back to this. 
to have joint planning, joint activities, sharing information, and sharing best practices across, such that we use these as a basis to promote an improvement in vaccination uptake. Really, a Thank good you. model for uh, the ev the evolving COVID nineteen vaccination programs, but also for our routine immunization programs. Amaya, I'd also like to hear from you based on your experience in the Middle East. We do have the opportunity, so there's you know between events to uh, to really plan things out and be strategic, and in a sense, sort of pre bunk and you know anticipate what it is we might be up against. And that is something best done together, including, including with communities, and best done with the opportunity to decentralise um, not only decision-making but also resources so that communities can be much more responsive. I think that's a really big uh, um, goal but certainly will, will make a big difference. Part of that is this idea of working upstream, much more upstream rather than chasing things um, downstream. And by that, I mean um, bundling together multiple services um, that we provide as part of our response, but often providing them separately. And that means that we need to integrate the vaccination approaches for COVID-19 with other routine activities, routine health care activities, in addition to other areas where people can easily access the, the, the vaccination. And in the final part of our discussion, we're going to look ahead to the future direction of COVID-19 vaccination programs across the world. Now, we've heard that these disparities um, across uh, the regions within and between countries in terms of vaccine uptake may be due to many different root causes, many different reasons, but that the solutions are always um, come from better understanding people's experiences, their lives, their priorities and fitting vaccination within those priorities. For example, we've just heard making vaccination as easy as possible and integrating it into other services that people receive. So we're in this situation now where um, North America, has, uh, which is 8% of the world's population, has received over 8% of the global vaccines. Uh, Africa, which is 18% of the world's population, has received less than 6% of the global vaccines. The Middle East, 5% of the world population, uh, less than 4% of the vaccines. We have a long way to go. We still see these dramatic disparities um, based on income, you know, income levels in countries. But what we want to talk about now is where are we headed with COVID-19 vaccination? because um, we, as we emerge slowly from the pandemic, um, uh, we need to be thinking, uh, what are the next steps uh, to ensuring that we continue to get the vaccines to people, but also potentially that we get them to them um, more regularly over time? So one of the first questions we had about um, the future was, what role will boosters play in the future COVID-19 landscape? Now, I've studied the behavior of viruses and, and the behavior of people. Uh, this virus has only recently jumped to um, humans, but I think we can safely assume that it's going to stick around for quite some time. We've seen it rapidly adapt um, to 
this species uh, to adapt to become more transmissible so that it can spread. Uh, we've seen that it's capable of um, fairly rapid and, and significant mutations. So we have to assume that we will uh, be living with COVID-19 as we live with many other uh, endemic diseases uh, for some time to come. So that uh, leads us to the question of how do we start to think about incorporating COVID-19 vaccination into our routine immunization programs? Um, I've touched upon influenza as a similar virus, a seasonal virus that we need to generate new vaccines to every year. I think there's a clue there to the role of boosters. Um, are we going to continue to give people boosters or are we going to transition to some kind of regular um, vaccine, perhaps a new vaccine every period, whatever that period is, um, to ensure that we're protecting people against the variants that are circulating at that time. Um, but we've also, we've also heard about um, how important it is to be integrating COVID-19 vaccine into other programs. And therefore, um, let's think about how do we start to bring it into our routine immunization programs with the obvious caveats that, um, as we heard from you, Henry, we're targeting, we're having to vaccinate new populations that um, many countries are not used to vaccinating. There are not many countries in the world with influenza vaccination programs that have been vaccinating adults and at risk adults and older adults uh, consistently over time. So I'd like to ask you, Henry, first of all, for your perspective on the future of COVID-19 vaccination, in particular uh, in terms of how it might be uh, integrated, transitioned into routine immunization in countries. Uh, uh, this, if I can start, uh, is with Uganda, we have started on this. Noting that one, the, the campaign mode was uh, an expensive approach and uh, time came when we were not making a headway because we exploited at the beginning the times of lockdown and when people weren't so busy, but now people are back to normal routine work. And the best way to get them and to make sure that we have a service at every time when they access facilities where we are vaccinating. And this means that if we did, if we have placement of vaccination at these clinics, chronic care clinics, both for adults and children, targeting their mothers and targeting patients that are coming for refill or reviews for HIV medicine or follow-up for, for hypertension becomes very critical and the way to go. Now, the question is how should we do this? One, we need to, to make sure that the populations are aware about the intent of a shift in this direction. And one, two, to make sure that the population appreciates the continued need for vaccination for the unvaccinated individuals, but also for those individuals that actually need to have boosters that are due, are due to, for boosters. And then the other things to make sure that we remove all the barriers to vaccination, delays at the vaccination point, because that's another major barrier that we have, which turns away people. 
we have a challenge in most of these countries, specifically Uganda, and I think a few other countries in Africa, where you have to get vaccinated, but you need the documentation and access to the documentation becomes a problem or has been a problem. So we need to remove all these barriers, have the documentation, which is much of this time is online, be read on time. Uh, for example, we had a backlog of data entered in the system and many people were complaining or not having their data captured. All these we need to move in tandem and make sure that the vaccination and the data capture and the access to documentation certifying that somebody is vaccinated is on time. These are some of the things that we need, but specifically, we need to consider the clinics or the, the areas where we have the individuals that are at high risk to be able to get their vaccination in routine care services, not in a kind of way that we've been working in a, in a campaign mode. Thank you. Amaya, I was um, only a few weeks ago in your region uh, talking, uh, well, running a workshop with EPI managers um, who are responsible for the influenza vaccine programs. And we see um, some quite stark disparities across the region in terms of influenza vaccination coverage rates as well. But we do also see that some and a number of countries in the region have a program already that is vaccinating similar groups of, of, um, of people, so at-risk individuals, the elderly, um, and health workers. Um, could you give me a few words around uh, how you see COVID-19 vaccination programs transitioning into routine immunization um, in the Middle East? So I'm a little biased because I am working with uh, UNICEF. So of course our, our focus is on children and children live in families. So um, get, having families being protected from COVID and other things is very important and particularly routine vaccination, which is a childhood vaccination program. And as you have said, um, we actually don't have an adult vaccination schedule. Uh, you know, most countries are, are not close to that uh, in our region. So what we have been doing in our region is working with routine vaccination. Um, it's not ideal, but it is a way of at least normalising that, uh, that COVID-19 vaccination might be something that the community could accept generally. In, in the Middle East and North Africa region, or Eastern Mediterranean, as WHO um, calls the similar region, uh, we find that um, traditionally we've had very, very high routine childhood vaccination. The fear is that some of the stigma around COVID-19 vaccination might bleed into the uh, acceptance of routine childhood vaccination. So we're being quite cautious. We know that there has been a backslide in routine childhood vaccination, but we also know that a lot of that was to do with um, services not being available over the last few years. So from a behavioural science perspective, it's quite important for us to get people back in this habit that they already had. It's a habit. They're not really thinking about it very much. They were just getting their kids vaccinated. Certainly, it was supported by a system and in the way that, that Henry was saying that, you know, we need to make sure it's easy, etc. We have reminders. It's quite a complex thing, routine childhood vaccination. And then we're looking at the conversation 
with the parents and other family members at the same time. In um, several countries we have, you know, we've written up the experience, like in Iraq and Syria as well. And, you know, these are countries that have had have very challenging um, situations. So in Iraq, we've seen a recent increase in the routine childhood vaccination as a result of some very determined efforts that also incorporated COVID-19, but we are seeing much slower uptake of COVID-19, which we believe we're going to need to accept uh, because the risk perception is not there. Um, it is going to be slower. Um, and so um, we do need to integrate it into these other services. And certainly routine childhood vaccination is the one that, that we're mainly um, working with. I think we've, we've heard that there's a part of this large global challenge of <clears throat> disparity in COVID-19 vaccination rates um, that has been due to our problems with availability of vaccines across the countries, but um, that there are a number of elements that we could be considering, in particular as health workers, uh, that we could be um, supporting uh, to increase immunisation rates in our countries. Uh, we've heard that the virus is not going anywhere and that the vaccines are effective against um, uh, symptomatic infection, but they're particularly effective against severe disease and therefore the at-risk people in your communities <clears throat> will be at continued risk of severe disease if they catch COVID-19. Vaccines are the way out. Uh, vaccines are the best way to protect those people. And um, while there are accountability challenges uh, that we've heard of that may be difficult for you to address, um, access challenges you can start to think about as easy as possible for people fitting vaccination into people's lives rather than asking them to leave their lives to get vaccinated, um, which touches the idea of affordability as well. Uh, you have an important role to play in uh, awareness and acceptance of vaccination, uh, helping people to understand why they should get vaccinated, where and when the vaccines are available, and also helping them uh, pass some of those uh, um, psychological or mental barriers uh, helping them uh, see the way through the fog of misinformation uh, to get the information from you as the most trusted voices. Um, there's a lot to be done, but I think, as, as Amaya said, we've already shown that a lot is possible uh, with these vaccines. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Henry Kiobe-Boza. I'd like to thank Dr. Amaya Gillespie for all of your thoughts today. and. Um, we look forward to seeing what each of you can do to raise immunisation rates in your communities. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on touch infectious diseases at www.touchinfectiousdiseases.com. Do keep checking back for updates as we launch further activities on COVID-19 vaccination. Music